Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakaran Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with all of our future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. The legal battle over Elon Musk's attempt to back out of a $44 billion deal to buy the social media giant Twitter began in July with a complaint filed by Twitter in the Delaware Chancery Court. This litigation is being played out in court as well as in the public, as even traditional media sources have covered each filing and argument made by the party's lawyers. To discuss this case, we're pleased to have two security litigators on the show, one from a plaintiff's perspective and one who has experience defending against these type of actions. So I'm going to start with Danielle Myers, who's a partner in Robbins, Geller, Rudman, and Dowd. Uh, she's in the San Diego office there and focuses her practice on complex securities litigation. She provides legal recommendations to the firm's institutional investor clients on their options to maximize recoveries and securities litigation, both within the U.S. and internationally, from inception to settlement. Danielle is also part of the firm's SPAC Task Force, which is dedicated to rooting out and prosecuting fraud on behalf of injured investors and special purpose acquisition companies. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Thanks, Dave. It's nice to be here. And we also have Joe Sims on the show. Joe is a partner in the Cleveland office of the Reminger Law Firm, where he is chair of the firm's broker-dealer and investment advisor regulatory compliance and enforcement practice group. Joe's primary focus is complex securities litigation and arbitration, financial institution litigation, compliance consulting, regulatory investigations and inquiry, and broker-dealer liability defense, in which he represents broker-dealers, investment advisors, banks, and insurance companies, and their licensed and registered personnel and claims involving allegations of professional misconduct. Joe, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Well, great. Danielle, let's start with you. Um, from a plaintiff's perspective, we like to start with the complaint in the case, which basically seeks to specifically enforce the deal to require that Mr. Musk buy Twitter. It's a very strongly worded, forceful complaint that was filed by Twitter's lawyers. Tell us about your perspective on the claims here and especially what you thought about the drafting of the complaint. One of the things I think that leaps out immediately in this case is how specific the claims were and the fact that they used Elon Musk's own words and tweets, almost anticipating the defenses and trying to knock them down as part of pleading the plaintiff's own case. I think if you step back and look at some of the commentary and the strategy at play here, you see a couple of themes. You know, one is kind of the, the theme of the orderly versus the disruptive. If you're familiar with Delaware Chancery Court practice, you know, the chancellors are experts in this law, truly. They were high-level practitioners, and they specialize in these issues. And all of the practitioners in the court are very high-level practitioners and also experts in the law. 
And it's very predictable. There's a reason why most companies and corporations incorporate in Delaware. Um, It's very corporate friendly. And so the question is, you step back and what do you have when corporation sues corporation in Delaware, right? When it's all corporate friendly. And then you you juxtapose that, which is orderly and predictable and very high level collegial, if you will, with someone who by his very nature and as an entrepreneur is disruptive. And that's a quality that we want in entrepreneurs. But then you, you butt those against each other. And I think what you have is just something that's fascinating to watch. And so when you when you go back to the pleading, which was your question, and what what is it about that pleading and the strategy behind it, it's really that theme, the orderly versus the disruptive, and trying to anticipate what the other side's going to do and how they're going to do it and and who's going to have the upper hand. You know, the other fascinating thing you know, not not just that, right? And and using Musk's tweets. I mean, the tweets are literally pasted into the pleading, which is which is just very fun, actually, from a, a, a dry legal perspective, um, to see the tweets leap leap off the page that way. You know, the players themselves. There's there's some interesting you know cross connections, if you will. The lawyers who negotiated. What Musk even says is a seller-friendly deal for Twitter. Simpson Thatcher, they represented Twitter in the 2016 securities case, where one of the allegations was that Twitter had, you know, misinformed shareholders about stagnant user growth and its user metrics, which is one of the issues in this case by Musk. And Another firm that that you know kind of has both sides is um, Wachtell, which is Twitter's litigation counsel who drafted this complaint, and they represented Tesla in the Solar City shareholder litigation uh, that just recently wrapped up a trial in Delaware Chancery Court. In representing Tesla, they obviously had very close access to Mr. Musk, and so they have some insight into his temperament and you know, what they think uh, the tea leaves might be saying and, and what they can anticipate. So from from a practitioner's standpoint, I just think there's a lot of kind of inside baseball, if you will. And it's fascinating from where I sit. And I'm kind of curious what Joe thinks um, from his perspective and on the defense side, what you see in the, ple- the, the Twitter's pleading, which is almost trying to knock down the affirmative defenses and the counterclaims in that affirmative pleading itself. Yeah, Joe, would love to get your thoughts. Sure, thank you. I, I, I will tell you from the defense perspective, looking at that complaint, I agree with Danielle that, uh, that Twitter is trying to anticipate defenses, anticipate affirmative defenses, and take the air out of them up front. Uh, I think it is a strong strategic move, but not without risk. Uh, the fact that they're making those arguments in the complaint without the benefit of discovery and without the benefit of an answer or counterclaim yet, it almost plays into Musk's defense that that Twitter was 
playing hide the ball and knew it was playing hide the ball in the context of the, the negotiations and finalization of the deal papers. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out once they've gone through some of the discovery that, that's uh, that's ongoing now, not the least of which is the, the recent subpoena that was issued to Twitter's CEO, Jack Dorsey, to hear what he has to say in the context of this litigation. And to another point that Danielle made, uh, when you look at this from the orderly and predictable versus disruptive and chaotic angle, I think both sides are, are, are trying to take advantage of the impact that the chaos has in a litigation involving a breach or potential breach of a $44 billion contract to ask for a trial date as quickly as Twitter has requested, I think is strategically designed to infuse this matter with, with chaos so that everyone is scrambling to be ready for a trial in what, a month and a half from now? I think all the traditional rules that we see in litigation in that court are, are somewhat out the window on this case because of the, the nature of the case and the nature of the players involved in the case. Right. And I actually was going to ask you about that trial setting because it, it seemed like a, just an incredibly aggressive schedule. I don't really, I don't never really practice securities litigation. So my question was, is, is this kind of a typical thing where, you know, a, a plaintiff would ask for an expedited trial and then defense would um, say, well, it doesn't allow for sufficient discovery. Is, is this a typical thing that happens in a Delaware Chancery Court? Danielle, I'll, uh, if you can take that question. You know, kind of as we started, we we noted how sophisticated this court is, um, and they they truly are. And that's not to say that every court obviously has a certain level of sophistication. You know, people who practice in the Southern District of New York, the Northern District of California, you know, the patent courts down in Texas, the Rocket Docket in Virginia. You know, each court specializes in a certain type of litigation, but the Delaware Chancery Court itself is just such a specialist court. And we see oftentimes the expedited trial, what would normally take one year, two years, three years, even a decade sometimes with complex litigation. This court and its practitioners time and time again just rise to the task and accomplish in a very short period of time what would take other practitioners and courts much, much longer. So I think in that sense, no, it's not unusual. I think to Joe's point, it's very disruptive to say we're ready for trial in two months. That's aggressive, just full stop, no matter what court you're in, even if everyone is an expert and practices at this level. Joe also mentioned, you know, some of the discovery orders that are coming in. The chancellor had a hearing just yesterday that was an hour and a half long hearing on two discovery motions or three discovery motions. The briefing on those motions and the letters that were flying back and forth and the length of the hearing and the complex issues, the very next day she issued a decision and, you know, is moving 
the case along, that is just a, a speed at which things don't happen in normal litigation, in normal, you know, kind of federal courts, if you will. And so I, I think there's an advantage to both sides, honestly, especially how big this merger is and how much is in the balance on both sides. The employees, the users, never never mind Musk and his team, and then Twitter and 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 the company and, and its team. There's so much in the balance. To have it resolved sooner than later is truly better f- for everyone, I think. Well, let's talk about the remedy that's being requested in the complaint, which is specific performance. The question that I think everyone who kind of thinks about this has is, is it really feasible to require Musk to buy a company he may not want? And if the court grants specific performance and Musk refuses to abide by that order, then what is the remedy? Uh, Joe, what do you think about that question? Well, I think that the remedy is somewhat self-evident. The court has the inherent authority to find a party in contempt for failing to abide by a court order. And technically speaking, that, that's what the court could do here. You know, query what the, the, the sanction is as a result of a finding of contempt. In, you know, in domestic relations court, if, if you don't pay your child support and you're ordered to, uh, to pay it and found in contempt for failing to do so, you can be thrown in jail for not paying support, for example. But it is, is the court in Delaware really going to throw Elon Musk in county jail? for not complying with the court order. I, I, I highly doubt it. I highly doubt that his attorneys would allow for it. And this is going to be tied up, I suspect, for years after the fact in appellate issues, despite the, the sort of rocket docket for the trial date. I don't see this matter going away quickly because one party or another is going to be dissatisfied with the result. So to your point, Dave, I, I don't know how this court enforces an order for specific performance. But practically speaking, I, I think that was strategic on the part of Twitter. Let's ask for specific performance. Let's try to get a resolution ultimately that is something less than that, but something more than the damages provision or set forth or the penalty provision set forth in the contract and we can all sort of lick our wounds and go away and hopefully get out of the public eye sooner rather than later. And that was the question I had for Danielle, which is, so is there a, a specific negotiating strategy here in that instead of asking for maybe an alternative remedy and like damages, for example, is it basically just they're trying to get Musk to settle, or do you think Twitter really wants him to buy the company no matter what? Yeah, it's a it's a fair question. You know, at, at bottom, this case is what would otherwise be viewed as a very simple contract case, right? You have Delaware statutory law, which is very clear, and there's mountains of decisions uh, deciding the statutory law. And then you you have a contract, right? You have a merger agreement that was negotiated by very sophisticated parties with very sophisticated lawyers, and the terms are fairly clear, right? So you you have at bottom, you know, what every first-year law student learns, which is contract law. What does the contract mean? What was everyone's understanding? And then what does the contract provide for a breach by either party, right? What are the remedies? And so in some respects— 
Twitter did what the contract said Twitter was allowed to do, right? Sue for per- specific performance. I think what your real question is, and, and what you're, you know, jo- Joe and I are, are kind of banting about on, on both sides is, is that what they really want? You know, I, I think time will tell. You know, there's certainly precedent on both sides. More precedent, I think, in the history of the Chancery Court for finding in favor of, of Twitter for specific performance, whether that goes the full distance and forces Musk to actually close the deal, I think is an open question. Could the chancellor say Twitter's entitled to specific performance, lift the liquidated damages clause, and basically force the parties to have a a post-trial mediation and a settlement? Yeah, I think that's possible. Um, But I I think at the end of the day, Twitter did what it had to do, which was follow the contract. And the contract says you can ask for specific performance, even if that's not really what they want at the end of the day. And Joe, let's talk from a defense perspective on, you know, what the defenses may be here. You know, from the media, it doesn't really seem like they believe that Musk has much of a leg to stand on in terms of a defense. But he did file an answer in the counterclaim basically relying on what he calls uh, allegedly undisclosed facts about these bots and that there was a material adverse effect that justifies, you know, breaking up this deal. So what do you think about uh, the defenses here? I I, I think he's going to be hard pressed to, to prove that the social media bot problem rises to the level of an MAE. Uh, literally for years, he's been publicly decrying uh, the problem with the bots. And, and uh, ironically, I suppose, he's been using the Twitter platform to do it. He, he's publicly stated that a driver for acquiring the company it was, at least in part, to clean up the bot problem. Now he's arguing that the bot problem is so extensive uh, that he should be released from his purchase obligations under the contract. Uh, it's in my view, it's it's going to be a tough hurdle uh, for him to demonstrate that the bot problem rises to the level of an MAE that, that would get him out from under that contract. Well, and it occurs to me, and Danielle, I'll ask from your, from your perspective, you have a, a, a client here who is on social media all the time, very publicly well-known individual, celebrity, if you will, but who's essentially making evidence for the other side using social media. What do you, what do you do with a client like that? that that's kind of my first question. Secondly, um, and, and what do you think about sort of what the defenses might be in the merits of them at this point? Yeah, I, I think, you know, having a unorthodox client, you know, he's, he's been sued by the SEC, right, for his own tweeting with respect to his own company, <laughs> My gosh, I mean, just having a client like that, it, it just renders everything unpredictable. And I think you have to plan for the unplannable, which is just very hard to do. So I, I can't imagine having a client like that because it just, it upends everything. You know, lawyers are very orderly and predictable by nature. Um, and so I, I think that's just a very hard 
task and situation to be in. You know, from my perspective, I think there's some atmospherics around the potential defenses. You know, the SEC sent Twitter a letter about their, the key metric here, monetizable daily active users or MDAO, and asked for more information about that, right? That's a key bone of contention that Musk is saying that Twitter misled everyone, the shareholders, the SEC, and him about MDAO and how that was calculated and that in, internally they had another metric that they they were using to, you know, value the company internally and, and what it was worth. So he's got some atmospherics in the sense of the SEC is now looking at Twitter for that and is asked about that. You've got the whistleblower, right, which is another wild card that's been interjected. And what what does that what element does that add to the litigation and this this otherwise ordinary, boring contract dispute, right? And so I, th- I think all of these atmospherics are interesting in that even what would seem, you know, I, I happen to agree with Joe. I think Musk has a very hard case to prove here because his own words undermine his case. But then you've got a couple of things where maybe if you keep pulling on those strings, maybe there's something there, there. Um, and maybe Musk's lawyers, you know, can can prove up that Twitter did mislead about this and, and then you have an MAE. Um, whether it rises to that level or not, I think, you know, remains to be seen and, and is what we're all kind of here for, right? We're watching to see if it rises to that level. But based on what we've seen thus far, I think I agree with Joe. I think it's a very, very tough case. Well, and, and Danielle, you, I think you said the operative word heard, which is atmospherics. I guess the question is whether, you know, what's going on here in Discovery and with this whistleblower is atmospherics or whether it's going to be something that is going to be substantial uh, with respect to the whistleblower. So this was a guy who was Twitter's former head of security and apparently had been telling the company that or, or reported that. Um, some of these uh, security risks were that there was an issue with with these risks and that um, they should have been reporting them and that Twitter may have made some inaccurate statements with respect to that. And then he was fired after making those warnings. Joe, is a Delaware chancellor going to be impressed by this stuff or is it basically just atmospherics and the the court is just going to look through all of that smoke and see that there's nothing there? The the real answer to that question, Dave, is it remains to be seen as the evidence comes in. At the risk of sounding perhaps too pejorative, I I think Musk's marching orders to his defense team are to get as much dirt as possible, make Twitter and its board and its shareholders as uncomfortable as possible, and try to force a resolution that it really is a drop in the bucket for a man of Musk's wealth. Again, it's strategic and it's smart. Dirty up the plaintiff, show at least the appearance of impropriety, if not the actuality of impropriety and misrepresentation misrepresentations and non-disclosure. You know, the argument, atmospheric or, or otherwise, it writes itself. If Twitter management was willing to mislead the public about security risks, certainly they were willing to mislead a buyer about the extent of bots in order to maximize the benefit to the shareholders from a sale. 
I think that's the approach that Musk wants to take with regard to the whistleblower, with regard to the other evidence that he's trying to gather. It really is going to be a case that that ultimately goes beyond just your ordinary contract dispute, as as Danielle said previously. You know, we have a very different situation here. Recall back to the O.J. Simpson trial that, that was on TV every day and the Johnny Depp trial that was on TV every day. This matter is being tried in the public eye. It's being approached differently than it would be if there was no publicity, regardless of the dollars involved. If the public wasn't watching this as closely as they are, I think the litigation strategy would be different. But when you have a company like Twitter and a board that has to answer to shareholders, dirtying them up and making them look bad and putting them at risk of regulatory exposure with the SEC, for example, I think that is a smart strategic move to try to drive a resolution here that's going to be much more beneficial to Musk than than it otherwise would be if it was just your run-of-the-mill contract interpretation. Well, I think, Joe, you, you raise a really great point, which is, you know, this is a case that's been, you know, watched and covered by the media and the, and the public. And Danielle, from a plaintiff's perspective, you know, what are some considerations that plaintiff's attorneys need to be aware of, especially when the media is covering your every move and the moves of your client in court? Yeah, I mean, from the very beginning, you need to have a media strategy. You know, you need to be on the same page with your client and whoever's speaking for your client, right? Um, So if it's a corporation, it's anyone that has the Twitter controls, right? So anyone who has the social media channels, anyone who can sign and file those SEC filings, um, anyone who's talking to analysts and large shareholders. And you have to be on the same page and agree that there's one spokesperson and that everything is kind of controlled and orderly, right? I think when you have a a corporation like Twitter, you've got that embedded, right? They've got a general counsel. They know SEC compliance. They know Reg FD. They know what they can say and what they can't say. They're being very careful, right? When you have an individual like Musk, who himself is enjoined by the SEC, you know, as far as at least Tesla goes, <laughs> um, and has a, a you know a babysitter on his own uh, account as far as Tesla goes and whether he can tweet about Tesla, you know, it makes it very hard from a management standpoint, from a messaging standpoint, and also just from a legal strategy standpoint. You don't want to concede anything. You don't want to do what Musk has done, right? He's gifted Twitter, you know, facts that are that are as to his mindset and as to what he thinks about things. That's a very difficult and challenging thing. So I think from day one or day zero, really, if you're contemplating litigation, being on the same page as your client and having kind of a roadmap for media and and how things are going to be talked about and who's going to do the talking ensures that there are no missteps along the way. And I think that's very important. Well, and it's interesting, you know, oftentimes you think you know, attorneys just think about kind of the legal analysis and arguments you're going to make in court, but perhaps just as important, especially in these cases, as you said, is the public relations battle and, 
does that mean you're getting, you know, a public relations firm to assist, uh, you know, with that battle or presumably, you know, large corporation like Twitter has uh, people on their staff that do those things. Joe, any sort of uh, takeaways in terms of what you can do on a public relations front um, when you have a a case that's closely watched and, and covered by the media and the public? Well, it really depends on which side of the dispute that you're on. Uh, to Danielle's point, Twitter has a, a much more defined path with within which it can walk than Elon Musk does. Uh, and I think it's a very smart move on the part of Musk and his team to do what they're doing here. Because he really stands to lose nothing in, in the court of public opinion here, whereas Twitter, to a certain extent, has its hands tied and stands to lose a lot in the public eye, even though Twitter, in my view, has a stronger case in court. So I, I think that uh, Musk's strategy here is a smart one. It, it pound on Twitter in an arena where where it can't really fight back as compared to fighting in the forum where Twitter has a stronger position. I mean, ultimately, we all know what Musk is trying to do. He's trying to, to, to prove that his impetus here is not what we all think it is, which is just a change in market conditions and stock valuation, which obviously is not an MAA, MAE or grounds to kill a deal. But given his wealth, his sophistication, and the expertise of his legal team and advisors, he's going to be hard-pressed in court to show that the extent of the bot problem was concealed, or at least was concealed in a manner that his due diligence could not or should not have uncovered. So uh, so what do you do when you have a, a losing position in a highly publicized case? Fight it out in the media. Fight it out on on the other side's own platform. Put them in a position where they can't defend themselves in the public eye, and, and that will make them more flexible in resolving the dispute where they do have a stronger position otherwise. Well, we're coming to the end of our conversation, and I do like to kind of bring this back to a practice point scenario and to think about, you know, what can litigators learn from this case and from what, what's happened in this case so far? Are there any final takeaways such as, you know, considerations for, you know, transactional attorneys or litigators or drafting contracts or negotiating any of those things? Uh, Danielle, uh, ladies first, let's start with you. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the lessons here there, there's so many. Beware who your clients are. Know your clients very well. Know who you're negotiating against almost better than you you know your own client, right? Anticipate that it's not going to go well. To a certain extent, I think Twitter had to know when it was negotiating this deal with him that they would be exactly where they're at today. And so part of a job as a lawyer is anticipating the future, anticipating the knowns and the unknowns. And the better job you can do for your client in anticipating those things, I I just think the more you set yourself up and your client for success. And I I think that's the 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 one takeaway I would take with with all of the the um just kind of the craziness in the circus. You know, the, the other one thing if I can just mention, you know, at the end of the day, 
the lawyers, uh, sometimes we tend to lose sight of, of where we're litigating. You know, I agree with Joe. This case is being tried in the court of public opinion. But it's also being tried before a chancellor. And she's a very smart judge. The, the messaging also has to be for her. And it has to be of a tenor and a sophistication and an appropriateness that ultimately, at the end of the day, you're convincing the chancellor that your client is right, not the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, or whoever's on Twitter retweeting and retweeting and retweeting and liking your post. But ultimately, your job is to convince the court that you're right and to not lose sight of that. So those would be my two takeaways. Great. Uh, Joe, any final takeaways that that, uh, you find? What is the moral of the story from your point of view? (laughs) Sure. Uh, Well, two points, actually. Just to tag along with Danielle's last point, I do think that that you have to be sensitive to the forum, and you do have to try the case to the, the, the finder of fact, the decider. But if you have a losing case, Put pressure on the other side any way you can within the bounds of the law. And here, Musk and his team are doing that by making Twitter uncomfortable publicly, making Twitter exposed with the SEC, making Twitter have to answer tough questions from its shareholders. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to sway the outcome of the case should the chancellor ultimately decide it. But what it does is induce, or hopefully from the defense perspective, induce Twitter to come to the table with a reasonable position on resolution. Number one. Number two, you know, this is such an extraordinary situation with a you know forty four billion dollar deal, and and a fast tracked and highly publicized litigation. I guess that my biggest takeaway is not really from the litigation perspective, which which is oddly enough contrary to to why we're here for the sectional litigation, but it, it, it's really in the the planning and negotiating and contracting stage for the transactional lawyers. They find a way to, to work around confidentiality concerns. Find a way to make sure that all the parties are going into a deal with their eyes wide open. You know, here, Musk is complaining that he didn't have enough information to make an informed decision and that he was not, and that was not for lack of trying on his part, but due to lack of transparency, uh, uh, if not outright dishonesty on Twitter's part. Twitter, of course, at that stage had had a vested interest in protecting its proprietary information before the deal closed, especially with a counterparty who has publicly and and repeatedly stated an intention to create a direct competitor to Twitter. So when you're negotiating these sort of high profile deals and you're you're working with parties who are let's say, mercurial, do everything you can, everything you can to to dot all of your I's, cross all of your T's, and head off at the pass any subsequent argument of lack of transparency or non-disclosure. And and I I think that's sort of the takeaway here. 
Great tips, and um, we'll certainly be watching this case very closely as it goes forward. We are at the end of our time together. Daniel Myers and Joe Sims, thanks. thank you so much for being on the show today. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dave, for having me. I really enjoyed this opportunity. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is Assistant General Counsel in the Litigation Center of Excellence at Honeywell International Incorporated. It's great to see you again, Daryl. Dave, it's great to be back. Well, I understand you have some tips about mental health for litigators. So what's your quick tip for today? Absolutely, Dave. Normally, we try to provide some tips that may be of substance to the practice, but I think as we get to approach the end of the year and maybe even potential closeouts of fiscal years for our litigators uh, and even the holidays, I think it's time that we should sit aside and and really focus on our mental health. Uh, As we know, this is a busy time of year uh, and most people are trying to get those hours in or you're trying to make sure that you're meeting quotas or or you're doing just whatever it is that you do towards the end of the year. uh, and, And Sometimes our mental health seems to take a a back seat, but I want to make sure that we bring it back to the forefront. And I want to offer up four tips that's uh, related to mental health. And I'll go ahead and do the four tips and then kind of elaborate on those afterwards. The first is to give yourself and others grace. The second is to take some time to and also for yourself. The third is to make sure that you're uh, incorporating a proper diet and exercise into your normal daily routine. And then the fourth is uh, general that uh, you shouldn't be afraid to seek help if it's needed. So going back to our first tip of giving yourself and others grace, uh, oftentimes in the practice, we get into the hustle and bustle and demand of wanting things right then and there and not really looking to extend grace to ourselves, but also others. Uh, And when I say to extend grace to yourself, that that mainly looks like taking time to really reflect for yourself and know that you may not have all the answers to everything. You may not be able to meet deadlines when you're uh, maybe self-imposed deadlines. And so sometimes in looking to do that, you have to give yourself grace. Uh, One thing that I've learned in the kind of on my now that I'm in-house and from what I looked at outside when I was, you know, outside attorney, when we're responding to discovery and you would send an email potentially maybe to your client and you don't hear back for a couple of days and you're, you're on that waiting period of just like, you know, I need them to respond. I need them to respond. But then you don't really realize that your case is not the only case that that in-house lawyer has. Uh, so you want to be able to extend grace and ensure that, you know, sometimes it's OK to give those gentle reminders. Uh, me and my in-house capacity, I, I don't mind having a responsive outside counsel that may check in with me if I may not you know have responded back to a request as soon as they would like. So I'm okay with this. So I think that when we go through out the practice that we should make sure that we're extending grace to each other. The second is to take some time to and for yourself. That uh, It's really self-explanatory that as we begin to get towards the end of the year, maybe that looks like scheduling a vacation or scheduling a massage for yourself or just really blocking some time out on your calendar to just decompress and take that time to really just kind of like self-reflect or maybe to meditate or do whatever it is that makes you happy uh, to make sure that your mental health is in a good state uh, as we conclude this year. Uh, and the third one that I want to turn to now is really making sure that you're incorporating a good, proper diet and exercise routine into your day, because that can really affect your mental health if you're not, you know, getting the proper foods that you need or not having the 
I guess, an adequate amount of meals throughout the day and also just drinking water to stay hydrated. You want to make sure that you are doing those things and then maybe getting in some exercise a couple of days out of the week. I think like it's recommended three to four days out of the week of exercise to just maintain a good, healthy balance in your life that can really just kind of play a role within your mental health as well. And the last one is really just to seek help and don't be afraid to seek help, uh, whether you may, you know, suffer from an addiction or any type of hang up, you know, don't be afraid to utilize your state's lawyer's assistance program or, you know, lawyers helping lawyers or your judge advocate programs, um, but also maybe even looking to, you know, sit down and speak with the therapist. So don't be afraid to seek out therapy or any type of help that you may need to ensure that you are maintaining a great, healthy balance life and even a great healthy mental state. And so Dave, those are my tips for our litigators today as we really focus on your mental health and ensuring that you keep your mental health in check. Well, terrific, Daryl. Uh, those tips are so important because we, we really need to take time for ourselves and keep our mental health in mind. So thanks so much for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com, and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at our next litigation section event. So please make plans to join us at the 2022 Professional Success Summit in Los Angeles, October 26th through the 28th. This is a great conference and CLE event dedicated to maximizing the potential of litigators from racial and ethnic backgrounds that have been traditionally underrepresented in the legal profession. To find out more and for registration information, go to ambar.org PSS. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. Finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section, for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to my co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Galetti and the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.